invite you to turn to Mark 12. As we see the Sadducees question over resurrection. Mark 12, 18 to 27, the question over resurrection. This is one question among many during this very trying and what I'm sure was a very long day for the Lord Jesus. Ever since chapter 11, verse 27, we have seen the Sanhedrin and their various factions come out and assault the Lord. And these are factions who did not see eye to eye uh, to, with each other. These are, these are groups of people who did not uh, play bridge or chess at the local uh, community center, uh, and they didn't sit at the same table at the potlucks. They, they hated each other. They had great animosity towards each other, and they would do anything they could to get an edge over each other. And yet, when Jesus Christ, the proclaimed king of Israel, comes strolling into town, into Jerusalem, and cleanses the temple with authority, they are he is a bigger threat to their collective than they are to each other. And so they have joined forces, they have allied together. And beginning at 1127, they presented a unified front that failed absolutely miserably. And not long after that, they, though still united, at least in appearance, they have now resorted to trying their individual tactics. They are taking individual jabs at the Lord Jesus. The Pharisees, as we saw last week, the Pharisees went first. They, along with the Herodians, uh, uh, attacked the Lord with a political question, uh, attempting to get him to say something that would arouse the anger and the, and the swift response of the Romans. That was last week. Today we are seeing the Sadducees approach him, not with a political question, but with a purely religious question. And then next week we will see the scribes approach him with a question, a religious uh, and lawful question of their own as to what is the most important commandment of the law. Today we're looking at the Sadducees question that they bring. We can divide this narrative into four points. They all start with A, and alliteration is next to godliness. Verse 18, we will see the adversaries. They are the Sadducees. Verses 19 to 23, do I need to duck or get out of the way? Verses 19 to 23, we will see the absurdity in the scenario that they bring to Jesus. Verse 24, we will see Jesus' immediate assessment of them, and then an expounded answer to their question in verses 25 to 26. The adversaries, the absurdity, the assessment, and the answer. And all those A's point to the awesomeness of alliteration. Okay, let's see what Mark says. Verse 18. Some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children, and the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are mistaken? That you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. 
Mark introduces us to the antagonists of this narrative. They are the adversaries in verse 18. And Mark introduces them as the Sadducees. We don't know exactly how they got their name. The most common uh, 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 sources say that they are uh, they, that they derived their name from the priest during the time of David and Solomon, and his name was Zadok. Uh, and you could see kind of how his name, how Sadducees would come from Zaduk Sadukeos, the K at the end of Zadok uh, softened to become the C in Sadducees. So most likely that's where it came from. Doesn't really matter. Doesn't change anything. Who are they? And what did they believe? Well, they were the aristocratic party of the Jews. They were not the largest group. That would have been the Pharisees and the rabbis or possibly the elders. The Sadducees were not the largest. They were the smallest. But they made up for that uh, lack in size with a lack uh, with an abundance of, of potency and power. They are, were the elite at the top of the Jewish social structure. And they were very powerful, A, because they were very, very rich, and B, because they controlled the temple. And that's because the Sadducee, the Sadducee party was composed primarily of the chief priest and the priestly families. And those within the Sadducees who were not themselves priests, remember the priests had to be descended from the line of Levi and the family of Aaron, the Levite. Those who were not themselves Levites were, uh, could still gain entry into this privileged class by being among the nobility, by having lots of money. And most of these were the landowners, uh, those who owned the majority of the real estate in Israel and leased out their land to the people of Israel. And this should remind us of the parable of the tenants that we looked at a couple weeks ago. Their power, their authority, their money granted them great social and business power. And they were not a people who were particularly pro-Israel. The fact is, is that they were pro-themselves. They really didn't care about the identity uh, and the um, prosperity of the people of Israel or the nation of Israel. Their major goal was to live fat and happy. They were pro themselves. Josephus, the historian, tells us that they were a particularly mean people and that they even treated their, their fellow Jews like aliens, like foreigners. So the way, the way that the Jews as a whole looked at Gentiles, the Sadducees looked at their fellow Jews with that disdain. They would look down upon people. They were socially and politically at odds with the rest of the people and the Pharisees because they saw making a public alliance and being publicly friendly with Rome uh, brought about certain legal and commercial and social advantages. Uh, they, they were those who allied themselves with the occupiers at the expense of their own people. So they, they weren't exactly popular at all with the rest of the Jews. Being politically opposed uh, was not the only way they and the, that the Sadducees and the Pharisees were different. They were also religiously opposed. And this is a detail that Mark uh, it's a most pertinent detail that Mark provides for us because what does Mark say is uh, as if it was an editorial parenthetical thought as assuming that his readers are going to go, Sadja who? Who are these people? Well, Mark tells us they are those who say there is no what? Resurrection. That is because they were anti-spiritual. They believed that this life is all that there is and when you die, your consciousness, your, your spirit is just poofed out of existence and that's it. And the Apostle Paul, we, we can see him actually use this to his advantage when he is uh, in Acts 23, 8, uh, he is brought on trial before the Sanhedrin. And when he recognizes that some of, the, some of his uh, accusers are, are Sadducees, 
uh, with Pharisees alongside him, he tells the Romans, I'm on trial because of the resurrection, knowing that's going to get them, you know, at each other, which is what happens. And then the Romans come in and pull Paul out, and that saves his life. Uh, Acts 23, 8, Luke says there to explain that, For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And as I said earlier, Josephus says they were of they were a vicious group. They were socially savage and they were mean spirited, even against their own Jews. And uh, we can see an uh, an attempt to, to justify uh, their behavior in First Corinthians fifteen thirty two. Uh, it's as if Paul is citing their own argument: uh, if the dead are not raised, then it's better to eat and drink. For tomorrow we die. If there's no resurrection, then there's, then there's no judgment. And that means there's no accountability for the good or the evil that you and I or anybody or any man may do in this life. Nothing really matters, does it? I mean, think about it. If you could, if you could stab your neighbor in the back for an extra buck and, and, and have all the pleasures and joys in this world and, and leave this mortal coil with 10 million bucks in the bank and no shortage of pleasures and joys that you've experienced, and there's no accountability for all the backs you had to stab and for all the people you had to step on to get there, that seems kind of worth it. If, it, if. if it doesn't matter at the end of the day, if there's no accountability, if there's no judgment, rather it's better to go out with a million bucks in the bank and a lot of joys at your back than to, to go out dead broke and to have nothing but a life of poverty and suffering to look back on. Because again, at the end of the day, what does it matter if there's no judgment, if there's no accountability? And someone may ask, I would hope some would ask, in response to hearing that they don't believe in spirits or angels or the resurrection, someone would ask, someone ought to ask, Aaron, doesn't doesn't the Old Testament have a thing or two to say about spirits and angels and about resurrection don't aren't there accounts of people being raised and i would say heartily yes you good berean you the old testament does first king seventeen twenty two. elijah raises the son of widow of the widow of zarephath second kings four thirty five. elisha raises the son of the shunammite woman second kings thirteen twenty one. uh uh uh, a man is being buried next to Elisha's grave and a, 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 a band of Moabite raiders are coming by and the, those burying this man just chuck him in so they can get out and the corpse accidentally touches Elisha's bones and the man get, gets up and walks away. Resurrection. Job writes, so for your record, that was those were in both of the kings. Job 19:25 to 27 says as for me I know that my redeemer lives and at the last he will take his stand on the earth and even after my skin is destroyed yet from my flesh I shall see God whom I myself shall behold and my eyes will see and not another and we look back at Psalm 16:9 to 11 my uh, David says, my flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures, not just for a short while, not just for a short 70 years, but forevermore. Psalm fourteen forty nine fifteen. God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Isaiah 26, 19, God says to, to the Israel, your dead will live, their corpses will rise. Straightforward, is it not? You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For, the, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Daniel 12.2. I mean, we're just progressing through the Old Testament. Daniel 12.2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And so it's no wonder in John 11 when Jesus says to Martha concerning Lazarus, your brother will rise again. And she says, well, I know he's going to rise in the last day. 
as a whole, the Jews believed in a general grand resurrection. But why not the Sadducees? Now, put on your thinking caps, saints of SVBC. Those nine or ten passages that I referred to, what parts of the Old Testament were they from? First Kings, Second Kings, Job, Psalms, Psalms, Psalm, Isaiah. I didn't, yeah, I quoted Isaiah. Daniel. If you have law, the prophets, or the writings and the prophets, what part of the Old Testament canon are those references found in? Well, I, I, I quoted the I quoted the writings, I quoted the prophets. What did I not quote from? Law. The Sadducees only believed that the books of Moses were authoritative and binding. The writings and the prophets, you can lump them all in with the apocryphal books. They are commentary. They are thoughtful reflections. They are informative. They are helpful. They're interesting to read in light of what the authority says. They are informative, but they are not binding. And they are no better than the apocryphal writings, which had, if you've ever read, if you've ever picked up a a Roman Catholic Bible and you've looked through uh, uh, the, the third and the fourth Maccabees and Tobit and Esdras and Baruch, there's some interesting, Bell and the Dragon, Judith, there's some interesting, weird things. And the Sadducees say, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, the the minor prophets, the major prophets, those are on the same field. Those are on the same level as all that weird stuff. It's all weird. It's all extra biblical. The Pharisees believed that the life to come... so, So that's what the Sadducees believed. Now, going over to the Pharisees for a second, the Pharisees believed accepted all of that. And they believed that the life to come was merely an extension of the lives that we now live and that a man would pick up right where he left off at the moment of death. And they, the Pharisees, had endless, endless, endless debates over all of the minutiae and all the details concerning this. And they, they didn't debate over whether or not there would be a resurrection. These are the things that they debated about. Would he have the same physiological features would he have the same infirmities would he have the same defects and characteristics and relationships and the general consensus was yes he's going to pick up right where he left off where they where where there where the the jury was still out was when a man rises is he going to be clothed and if he is going to be clothed is he going to be given new clothes or is he going to come back in the robe that he died in and if he was buried outside of Israel, how is he going to raise in Israel? Because the prophet said that, that the resurrection would occur in, in Israel. And they conceded that the bodies would roll through tunnels in the ground and pop up like a spring flower in Israel. Those were the things that the Pharisees would, would, would hotly debate over. And the Sadducees look at the whole thing at all the ridiculous debates and just lump in, just throw the entire resurrection in with that. The Sadducees took advantage of the endless ridiculous and speculative debates of the Pharisees and based on the assumption, they're going to borrow the argument, they're going to borrow the belief of the, of the Pharisees, Based on the assumption that the life to come is merely a continuation of life as it is now, they are now going to, uh, if, you've, if you're familiar of the reductio ad absurdum fallacy, they're going to try to, uh, they're, they're going to pretend for the sake of argument that there is a resurrection. Let's that's, that's pretend that, that we're going to come back, just like you Pharisees are saying. They're going to make the most absurd, ridiculous, silly scenario possible and they're going to throw that they're going to lob that at the feet of jesus and they're going to see you know since jesus is such the great teacher how is he going to answer this what's he going to come up with what sense can he make of this ridiculous concept of the resurrection 
And I think that this was probably the Sadducees' ace in the hole that they had probably silenced many a Pharisee in public debate before. Let's, let's, let's see what Jesus does with it. And let's look at this ridiculous, perceivably unanswerable question that they give him. Let's go to verse 19, the, the absurdity. Mark writes, or the Sadducees say, teacher. Oh, respected teacher, Moses. And see, that there's, there's, the, there's going back to Moses. They're not going to the prophets. They're not going to the writings. Moses wrote for us that if a, man, if, if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now, this refers to the leveret marriage as prescribed in Deuteronomy 25, 5, and 6. It is expounded, I think, all the way to verse 9 or 10. And it was given, and, and, and Mark tells you exactly that their summary of the law is, is, is sufficient. And that law was given for two reasons. One, it was given primarily so that in the case that the head of a family dies and there's no son to preside over the family interests, the family name and the family estate would be protected. Because when, when the brother marries the wife of the deceased and raises up a son from that union, the, the son would take upon the name of the, of the deceased brother. And that's, as, as Mark says, that he is raising up children for his brother or to his brother. Uh, for all intents and purposes, from a legal standpoint, he is the legitimate son of the brother of the man who has died. The family estate would fall to him. It would be his legal right, and the family name would pass on. That was the primary reason. But the secondary reason that it was given was, that was, was as an act of mercy for this woman who would now have to try to find a husband. It, would to, it was to ensure protection and provision for, for a widow who's going to have a much harder time finding a husband. And we, Moses writes in, that, uh, in Deuteronomy 25 that if she goes to him and he declines, the elders are to go to him, and if he still declines, then she is to remove, or uh, she or they are to publicly remove his sandal. She is to spit in his face, and then he is to be called he whose sandal has been removed. Now, Jennifer and I went to Waco a few weeks ago, and we visited that Jimmy Don guy's workshop. And, you know, I looked on all the panels that he makes, and I didn't find an, a, a, a wall pamphlet that said, he whose sandal has been removed. Charlie has a CNC machine. Maybe I could have him make one for me. I mean, I'm not going to put it up in front of my house, but it was a shameful thing. It, it, it was a gracious thing to do. It was a shameful thing to neglect. And you can see this, you can see this uh, uh, negatively in Genesis 38 where Judah's first, uh, second son, his first son dies. His second son, Onan, uh, refuses to raise up a son. God kills him in judgment. And then through an interesting turn of events, Judah becomes the kinsman redeemer. Wasn't planning to do that. We see it positively in Ruth chapter 4 where Boaz becomes the kinsman redeemer for Ruth. It was, it was a good thing. It was an expected thing. It was a gracious thing. So with that law in mind, here's the ridiculous scenario, which the Sadducees think will, because it is so absurd, because of, because of the absurdity of, of the, uh, uh, where the argument would go if you just follow it out. They think it, this will surely disprove the resurrection. It's going to make Jesus as well as the whole Pharisees look like a bunch of fools. That's what they want. Publicly discredit Jesus. And if they can get the Pharisees to look dumb, they'll do that too. So here's the, here's the ridiculous scenario. There are seven brothers. You know, Jesus would tell parables or tell stories. Well, now they're telling him a, a, a story. There were seven brothers and the first took a wife, and he died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children. And the third, likewise, and so on down through the line. And I wonder, what did the seventh guy feel 
when it was his turn to marry her. You know, uh, there, there, there's no historical uh, 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 placing of this unless you count the man whom Jesus called to follow him and he said, I can't follow you because I've just married a wife. He's, he knows he doesn't have much time to live if that was the seventh man. So then last of all, the woman died also, and that was a mercy. In the resurrection, you know that fanciful time where people rise from the dead? I mean, you, you, have, to, you have to put air quotes, and you have to imagine them saying it with just this, this, this mockery of a tone. When they rise again, Jesus, in the resurrection, which one's wife will she be? For all seven married her. Now, remember, they are borrowing from the Pharisees' view of the resurrection. They are borrowing what they believe to be Jesus' view of the resurrection, which is that the next life picks up precisely where this life ends off. The life to come is merely a continuation, nothing more, nothing less than the life that you and I have right now. And here is this, here is this woman who was married to seven men. None of them produced a son. None of them produced an heir. So they are all on equal footing. None of them stand out as the one who passed, passed on the line. They, they, they are all on, on equal footing to be considered her husband in the life to come. And so, which one will be the husband? Which one will she be married to? That's an absurd situation, an absurd scenario, isn't it? Well, before Jesus answers their question, he assesses them in verse 24. He he feels an assessment is in order, an assessment of them and of their beliefs. So he says to them, verse 24, and he phrases this, it's phrased as a, uh, as a question, it's posed, it's presented grammatically as a question, but it is an accusation. You know, we, we, can, we can ask questions, but... Accuse people of things in a question. What were you thinking? Translation, you weren't thinking. So there's, it's an accusation, and there are three parts to this accusation. First, as verse 24 begins, he says, You are mistaken. The word is planao. What, what word does that sound like? Planao. What's way up there? Yeah, planets. This is the word for planet. The, the word means to go astray, to be off course, to wander. And, and the thought was in the old world that stars were wandering bodies. It means to wander. And this is something, this is not something that you want to be said of you when you are in a position of power, when you are in a position of respect, when you are in a position of authority. You don't want to be labeled as one who is off as one who is erroneous, as one who is in error, as one who's left the reservation. You want, to be look, you want to look as if you have all your ducks in a row and you know what you're doing and you're capable and you're competent. You don't want to be accused of being mistaken. And this is precisely the label they were anticipating that they were going to get on Jesus. This is the last thing that they wanted to be called. This is the last thing they expected that they would be called in this confrontation. So he says, you are mistaken first. Secondly, he, he says, you do not understand the scriptures. This is, this is the grounds for which they are mistaken. You do not understand the scriptures. You have the scriptures in your possession. You're familiar with the scriptures. You've read them over and over and over again. You pride yourselves for having them. You think you know them, but the, but your profession of your doctrine clearly demonstrates that the scriptures have gone clearly over your head. You do not understand the scriptures. That was the second accusation. The third accusation is that as to why uh, the second 
reason for them being mistaken, the third accusation in total is that you do not understand the power of God. You are mistaken. You do not know the scriptures. You do not know the power of God. Now, left by itself, that would be an ad hominem attack. That's just saying something mean about somebody. An accusation like that, a charge like that, is begging to be backed up, don't you think? Jesus does back it up. And he gives a whopper of a backing up in his in his answer in verses 25 and 26. He begins by saying for and you can you, know, you can replace for with because sometimes that helps make sense makes sense because he's explaining he's answering why why are they wrong why are they mistaken why do they not know the scripture or the power of God well because Jesus says when they rise from the dead and you have to stop right there. Jesus, Jesus is saying, in effect, this silly question that you pose in itself shows that you are off the reservation. You are clearly deluded. You are clearly not qualified to teach when you presuppose that men will not rise from the dead for the sheer and simple fact that men will, in fact, rise from the dead. Notice that at the beginning, Jesus is already affirming what the Sadducees have written off as ludicrous. Jesus is affirming what the Sadducees deny. So continuing on with that affirmation as the base of his reasoning, he continues to answer their silly question. Not if they rise from the dead, when they rise from the dead. Here it is. Here's his explanation. They neither marry nor are given in marriage. And so the answer to their question, whose wife will she be? Well, she's not going to be anybody's wife. Why is that? Because men will not marry and women will not be given in marriage. So contrary to the Sadducees, men will rise. But contrary to the Pharisees' belief, they will not simply and merely resume their earthly lives when they, where, their, where their lives were when they left off at death meaning that they will not be reunited with their spouses for the purpose of resuming or continuing the marital relationship. And why is that? Well, Jesus tells us. Marriage will not be present in heaven because when they rise, you see that in verse 25, when they rise from the dead, they are like angels in heaven. Now notice, Jesus is not saying that they will be angels in heaven. What does he say? You will be like angels in heaven. And this isn't because marriage is bad and it's something that needs to be done away with. Marriage is, in fact, very good. Can I get an amen? Good. Marriage is very good. God designed marriage chiefly so that we could reproduce and so that we could have companionship. That's not an exhaustive Uh, uh, list of reasons why he created it, but chiefly for uh, so that we can be fruitful and so that we can have companionship. It wasn't good that man be alone because how is he ever going to find where he's supposed to go if he doesn't have a wife to help him along the way? In heaven, so let's look at the first one, reproduction. In heaven, there will be no death. Therefore, there will be no need to reproduce. And as for companionship, Jesus has already said, if you remember back in chapter 10, verse 30, that those who are his disciples, that they will have 100 times over the brothers and the sisters and the mothers and children, as well as farms and and goods and houses, we will have far more in the life to come than we ever had in this life. And not only is there an incalculable number of saints to have as companions and friends and family there will be an innumerable great host of saints that you will have all eternity to get to know and to spend as much time with as you want not only that but first thessalonians four fourteen specifically tells us that we will be reunited with our loved ones with with the particular people that you loved and the particular people that loved you you will be reunited with them. They, they, there was a concern there. There was a fear 
that in light of the coming rapture, that those who had already died and those who wouldn't be alive when the rapture came, that they would somehow be missed. So they wouldn't see their loved ones again. And Paul writes in in 1 Thessalonians 4.14, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And he says specifically, comfort one another with these words. Which means that he wrote that in, in, in specific response to their fear. What fear? That they will have missed, that their loved ones who have already died will have missed being reunited with Christ. You will be reunited with your loved ones. And if I can make the good news sweeter, may I do that? The love and the companionship that we have with one another now, is it perfect? What's it tarnished by? What's it hindered by? Let's say it, let's say it like good old fundamentalist Baptists. Baptists, sin. <laughs> I had a professor. You, you remember when Carl would would quote uh, Farnell, the crazy guy? Sin. I don't know how you spell that, but we our our affection, our fellowship, our companionship, our love, our mutual service. It's not perfect. Some of some of us know this more than others. It's not perfect. It is tarnished by sin it is strained our relationships are strained by sin i have the pleasure of reaffirming to you that we will not have our sin in heaven because we will be glorified and made like jesus that's that goes into being like the angels they are glorified and in that time in that State, we will no longer frustrate, we will no longer aggravate, we will no longer test each other. So don't buy into that lie for a second that you will be bored out of your minds in heaven. I have never seen a scriptural case where the angels are bored. We will be like the angels. We will never die, we will be glorified, and we will have undiminished, unhindered, pure love, not only for each other, but with our God who saved us through the power at work in Jesus Christ. It was the power of Christ that saved us, and it will be the power of Christ that will raise us. He himself, the Lord says in John six forty four, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then he gives this promise, and I, I will raise him up on the last day. You bet the Sadducees misunderstood the power of God. And now Jesus understand, uh, addresses their misunderstanding of Scripture. In verse 26, he says, but regarding the fact, and, and you have to read this in the sense of, oh, by the way, while we're talking about the resurrection, since you brought it up, regarding the fact that the dead rise again, and now he's going to let them have it with two barrels unloaded. And he's going to do it. He's going to do it with their own authority. In other words, you only listen to Moses. Fine. Let's go to Moses. Let's see what Moses says about the resurrection. You Sadducees. And by the way, if God did only speak by Moses, and he hadn't spoken since Moses, do you realize how long by by this point? By 30-ish, 33 A.D. Do you know how many years it's been since God would have spoken had he not spoken since Moses? About 1,500 years. That's like, okay, math is hard. Uh, 15 times the length that our nation has been a nation. It's a long time. That calculation was not inspired. He says, have you not read in the book of Moses? Oh, and this is, there's sarcasm here. There's, there's, a, there's rebuke in here. This is stinging. This is stinging to those who, who prided themselves in being the experts of Moses. Having every single verse, jot, and tittle intricately memorized. 
haven't you read in the book of Moses? Of course they've read in the book of Moses. But in the passage about the burning bush, that so we know he's talking about Exodus 3. He, they didn't have chapter and verse at that point, so Jesus has to tell them what passage he's talking about. And, and Mark recounts uh, enough for us to know who, who may not have, uh, those in Rome may not have had the Old Testament handy. What did God say to him in the burning bush passage? Well, he said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, again, let's put on our thinking caps, our Old Testament thinking caps. Which book is Abraham and Isaac and Genesis in? And those of you who have been here for our public scripture reading for the last year should know this. Genesis, Daniel, you look confused. Thank you. Genesis. And Moses is in which book? Exodus. We're going we're gonna to know that for sure in the next couple months. Moses, it, the, the, the three patriarchs are in Genesis. Moses is in Exodus. Exodus is centuries after Genesis. And so I, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been dead for a long time. I don't care how much uh, 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 lubriderm or whatever that skin stuff, Avon, I don't care how much skin product they had, they are decayed and shriveled and nothing more than a husk at this point. They are long gone. They've been buried for a long time, and yet what does God say to Moses? What does he say? I am yes i am not i was i am and, you know if, if i were to say okay who can i pick on if i were to say if i were to introduce you hi i i was matt you know i'm i didn't know you guys knew matt i was matt's seventh grade math teacher what does that tell you about our about our relationship at some point in the past i was his math teacher and he was my student if i were to say i am matt's seventh grade math teacher it would mean either he's still in the seventh no it, I mean, it, that's what it would mean he is still we are still in this relationship he is still in the seventh grade which i can understand because math is hard he says he doesn't say i was their god i am their god the relationship with each of those three men is still intact, despite the fact that physically speaking, they're not, they're reduced to nothing more than a pile of bone and dust. The three men in question who belonged to this God, they still belong to their God, to this God, which means that they are somewhere, which means that there is such a thing as this, as spirits and the afterlife and resurrection, which means they're, they're still alive. And Origen, uh, an early church father, who he, you have to take a grain of salt, uh, everything he said with a grain of salt, because sometimes he got weird. But he said that he, he hit the nail on the head here. It is ridiculous for God to say that he is the God of men who have no existence. If they are nothing more than dust, God cannot now at this moment be their God because they are not there to have a God. We see this clearly in Jesus' own commentary. He tells us succinctly. He tells us the point of this. He says, verse 26, 27, He is not the God of the dead, but what? Of the living. Steve Lawson says, You will never be more alive than five seconds after you die. Billy Graham said, someday you will hear or read that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it for a second? I shall be more alive than I am now. I will merely have changed my address and I will have gone into the presence of God. There is a resurrection. And Jesus says, and he closes with these words, you are greatly mistaken. Matthew and Luke record the reactions of the audience. Matthew uh, records the crowd's reaction. Luke records the scribes' reaction. The scribes were uh, uh, were actually quite thrilled that Jesus stumped the, the Sadducees. 
But it seems fitting for Mark that as Jesus says these words, that the curtain falls. Jesus repeats with a great sobering emphasis to the Sadducees what he said at the very first. He says, you are mistaken. That's what he starts off with. That's what he closes with. That's called an inclusio. An inclusio is given so that you get the point, so that you don't miss it. You've You've got to have both ears plugged to not get this point. You are mistaken. As far as truth and facts are concerned, when it comes to the scriptures and what God can do, when it comes to what God will do, you are adrift, you Sadducees. You have wandered off. You, sirs, are the fools. You are mistaken. You are greatly mistaken. And that he uses this inclusio, and saying at the beginning, saying it again at the close, and that this, that this closing is so abrupt, this tells me that this is something Mark wants to emphasize. And he doesn't want to surround it with too many other details, lest it be lost on us. So let's make that our first takeaway, our, our first so what. Do not, listen, dial in with me. Don't be, I, I know lunch is about five minutes away. Stay with me. Do not be gravely mistaken with the scriptures or the power of God. Do not be mistaken with the scriptures or the power of God. These are men who by their traditions and by their own captivation with their own sense of of. of of superiority, their own sense of worthiness. They have placed themselves as the judges and the arbiters of Scripture. They felt they had the right to say what God has said and what God has not said. God judged them for it. God in the flesh said to them, you, sirs, are wrong. What will God say to you when you stand before him? Well, will God say, why did you close your heart and your mind off to what I said in the scripture? Christian, do you, do you allow the totality of God's word to confront you and to speak to you? Or, or have you put up walls and have you closed off, have you silenced or muted God's word so that you can justify or so that you can defend a kind of sin. Your unbelief. I've heard many people say, even people that, people that I know personally, my God would never do that. My God would never say that. A God who, who says something like that offends me. Therefore, he can't be my God. Do not be gravely mistaken about God's word. Do not be gravely mistaken about the power of God. And concerning the supernatural, we must understand that God is bigger than us. We can't, we can't reduce God. We can't dismiss God simply because he does something that we may not understand. Augustine, Augustine said that, uh, uh, recounted trying to figure out God's sovereignty one time. He's walking along the beach and he sees a little boy digging a hole on the beach. And he asks the boy, what are you doing? He says, I'm digging a hole to fill it with the ocean. And Augustine said, that's what I'm trying to do when I'm demanding that, that God must be understandable. God must be relatable. There are some things about God that we will not, even with all eternity, be able to explain. Do not be gravely mistaken with his scripture or his power. Secondly, hope in the resurrection. If this life is all there is, then you know what? In all honesty, Sadducees were on to something. Honestly, better to live it up in the words of Paul. And this, he may have been borrowing their own argument. If the dead are not raised, then let's eat and let's drink and let's be married because what happens tomorrow? In the proverbial tomorrow that that will befall all of us. What will happen? We die. 
So what does it matter whether you lived it up or not? Better make the most of the time. If that's all there is and if the dead are not raised, but beloved, the dead are raised. That's not all there is. There is a life to come. And that means a judgment. That means accountability. Beloved, place your hope, place your full hope in Christ, in his salvation, and in the resurrection that he promises to you. Hope in the resurrection. Third, believe and rejoice that Jesus is always in control. This is something that each of these testings, that each of these confrontations should speak clearly to us in volumes. These are men. These were intimidating men. These were learned men. These were fearful men. These were men who could make people disappear. That's what they were trying to do with Jesus. These were very smart, very powerful men. These are men who could frighten, intimidate, threaten, and do great harm to a great number of people. These were men who could beat a great many people, but beloved, they could not beat Jesus. And the rest of Scripture tells us that all authority, all judgment has been given to this one whom they could not beat. That is a Jesus worth worshiping and trusting and following and placing your hope in. Believe and rejoice that Jesus is always in control. Amen? Lord, this must have been a a long, arduous day for you. A day that you didn't enjoy, and yet we, we learn from your interaction with these men. It didn't change their hearts. It didn't soften their hard hearts, but we gain understanding. We learn. We benefit from this, from your words. And so we thank you for this number of confrontations that you had to endure for for the sake of your people thank you for being the savior who overcomes thank you for being the savior who can't be backed into a corner and who can't be beaten by the wiles of men thank you for being the savior who overcomes all and to whom all judgment and power has been given remind remind us of this when we need it And we need it always, but remind us of that blessed truth when we are in trials and the hardships of life and of this world seem so big. Remind us that you are God. Amen.